when we think about persecution, we want to be careful with the idea. It's easy to fall into a paranoia if we're not careful. Ralph Waldo Emerson in his journal in 1838 wrote, Let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted when I am merely contradicted. We want to be careful with the idea because there's always going to be give and take in life. And when we think in terms of the persecution of Christians, we ought to be thinking of something that's serious, not just a disagreement or an insult or a snubbing. The persecution that may possibly come to us would not have to be from government, but I believe the real persecution that we might possibly face will come from an authoritarian or even a totalitarian rulership. I don't know if I ever told you how I learned about totalitarianism, but it was a lesson I had many years ago in the 10th grade in high school. We had a world history teacher by the name of Miss Shin. This was at Raytown South High School in the Kansas City area. We were sophomores. We were required to take world history. We were seated in alphabetical order. And I remember since I was Sparks, Carla Spires was sitting right behind me. We sat that way all year. So I got to know Carla pretty well, not just in that class, but other classes as well. Interestingly, as a side note, I was in Albany, Missouri recently and had never been there before with the church there. But somebody there told me that Carlos Byers has died and was buried just right around the corner from the Albany Church building. She's got a daughter that lives over here in Indianola that I visited with not long ago. But we were in that classroom, and as uh, one songwriter said, I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. Miss Shin gave me this vivid, almost indelible impression. She wasn't very old, probably, but we thought she was because we were 16. She had never married. She had devoted herself completely to her profession. She was the epitome of the dedicated teacher, and she was good at it. I just wish we had appreciated her more at the time. But the bell would ring at the end of the hour, and she'd say, that bell is a signal for me, not for you. And after the bell, we had to wait for her to dismiss us because after the bell, she would tell us what we were going to do the next day. And one day after the bell, she just blithely said, tomorrow we'll talk about totalitarianism. And when we came in the next day, there had been a change in this woman. Instead of the usual mousy little Miss Shin, we found a dictator. Somebody said something to her and she said, shut up. Somebody else came in the room. She said, sit down. She had a yardstick and she whacked it across her desk. Nobody knew what to think. Some of the girls were actually in tears. Carla was cowering behind me. And this went on for five or ten minutes until we had this dawning realization. Oh, yeah, this is totalitarianism. And she quickly taught us that we didn't want to live under that system. And 55 years later, I still don't want to live under it. That term was first coined and used by the supporters of Mussolini. Everything within the state, nothing outside the state, and nothing against the state. Nothing can be permitted to exist that contradicts the ruling ideology, whether it's left 
or right or Islamic or so-called Christian or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. The system cannot be denied. The system depends for its existence on people's fear of challenging the lies. We wouldn't have dared challenge anything that Miss Shin said that day. She had the yardstick. She had the authority. And back then, teachers could hit you, and sometimes they did. And totalitarians have learned a long time ago that if you hurt people badly enough, they'll do exactly as you say. This ideology tries to replace all prior traditions and institutions. It tries to destroy the essence of man and make you love Big Brother, a reference, of course, to 1984. We in our country at this time have a present system that is already demanding allegiance to a set of progressive beliefs, many of which are incompatible with logic, as we said yesterday. In 1984, Orwell wrote, quote, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. This was their final, most essential command, end quote. The system tries to appeal to a desire for a just society. Many of you have read these dystopian novels like Brave New World. Telescreens in private homes, keeping track of the lives of the individuals who live there. I had chills run up my spine when a brother in a congregation recently said that you might want to put a piece of black tape over the camera on your smart TV because your smart TV has the capability of watching you. Chills ran up my spine when an old farmer said to me, we were sitting in a farmhouse with another couple talking across the kitchen table when suddenly somebody's phone laying on the table said, I didn't get that. I didn't understand that. But this phone is a part of the conversation. The oldest lie in the world is you shall be as gods. This is the foundational principle for the new culture. We were talking yesterday about the transgender movement, the choosing of psychology over biological reality. We might think back just a hundred years ago because we don't have time to go all the way back to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts where Peter and John, after things going pretty well between the church and state for the first couple of chapters there, suddenly in chapter 4, Peter and John are put in a basket of deplorables. And we could go through the ten waves of Roman persecution under the pagan philosophy. But if we go back in our time, just a hundred years ago, and ask ourselves, why was the revolutionary Russian generation so eager to place its hope in communism. Well, they'd had a bad famine. The czarist system had failed to respond to the crisis. The Russian Orthodox Church was so ossified as to be almost meaningless. Marxism was a secular religion for a post-religious age. Karl Marx despised religion, but he was quite religious about being secular. And most of the revolutionaries in the Russian Revolution were students from privileged classes. And they were almost always abetted in their homes when they became revolutionaries. Oh, isn't that cute? He's a revolutionary now. And people did not understand what was even going on. But we had in 1917, the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks being relatively small in number. And then in 1918, Lenin unleashed the Red Terror. And a revolution that was supposed to correct historical injustices became exterminationist in its exercise of raw power. We could see this many other times over the past century. 
Totalitarian movements tend to be mass organizations of isolated individuals who are lonely and who aspire to a politics that can replace the community that they wish they had. A willingness of the passive masses underneath them to consider these radical alternatives goes along with this as well. And many who had felt that they were set free from the bonds of religion did not thrive in the, re- in the liberty that they thought this was going to give them because they lost their sense of shared purpose. They lost their sense of meaning and of community, and the state took over that role. The Soviet government intentionally caused the Russian people to turn on one another. People hated others more than they loved truth. Hating others became so narcotic that they were willing to accept monstrous forgeries, many who didn't even believe in the revised history, were willing to accept it because it was such a useful tool to punish people that they hated. False propaganda changes the world by creating false impressions of the way the world is. It shuts people off from the real world. It frames people's understanding of news and events according to a radical ideology. And eventually people get to the place where they no longer even trust their eyes and ears. They only trust their imaginations. What convinces at that point are no longer facts, but only consistency with the system that they have bought into. Many embraced communism because it was a vision of paradise in which they could believe. Now, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, and I don't know what's going to happen. What I do know is that the weaknesses in our society right now are consonant with a pre-totalitarian state. We have younger generations abandoning religion, which gives purpose. They're emphasizing experiences of the senses over spiritual and rational ideals. When Russia's young elite of the culture expected to find the end of aristocracy and autocracy and class divisions and the the advent, the emphasis was on equality, that's what they expected, but what they got was dictatorship and prison camps and the extermination of free speech. The myth of progress sells progressivism as religion. To resist the party is to stand against the future. To oppose the party is to oppose progress and align yourself with greed and bigotry and injustice, words that are often undefined. Faith in progress is just as basic to progressivism as belief in the second coming is basic to Christianity. Christian justice depends on the biblical concept of what a human being actually is, created in the image of God. And when you forfeit that biblical concept, then you're just a lab rat. And why should a lab rat be given the gifts of freedom? For Marxist, justice means an equal distribution of society's material goods, reducing the individual to her economic status or her racial or sexual or gender identity. It's just an anthropological error. It's untrue and therefore it's unjust. No social order that denies the existence of sin or approves things that alienate us from our creator can ever be just. Abortion is always unjust. The system makes the accusation the same as guilt. We have all kinds of words flung around. Homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia. What do these words even mean? We don't know because they're never defined. They're simply throwing stones at a scapegoat. And nobody's ever held to account for it because you don't have to prove the accusation. All you have to do is make the accusation. 
arguments with these people are often about as productive as a disputation with a synod of Taliban divines. That's one of the most chilling things. We often err by thinking that these people can be engaged with reason. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We should try. But so often they consider their subjective beliefs to be incontestable knowledge. So that disagreement with them is an attack on their identity. They don't want to discuss. They're just mad and they're very serious about their new religion. I hear these people chanting, stop hate, stop hate, stop hate. And the only people I see hating are them. And what can be done about this? We are repeating today the Marxist habit of falsifying language, hollowing out the familiar words and replacing these words with new meaning. They have their own dictionary. They talk about equity when they really mean discrimination. They talk about fairness when they really mean unfairness on an amazing scale. They talk about justice when they really mean revenge. And it takes such a long time for people to see through this that by the time we do see through it, we may be too far down the road to stop it. A lot of people think that you can keep on running left and running left and running left, and the worst thing you get to is veganism. You never get to the gulag. But the reality is far different. Truth has the power to end every tyranny. We speak the truth in love and we let the chips fall where they may. But any notion of progress that depends on labor camps and police informers and making everybody equally poor to achieve justice and equality has got to be phony. They believe progress is the liberation of human desire from limits. It's a perpetual war against natural limits. This is why they regard us Christians as their most significant remaining obstacles. We're standing in the way of what they want. So, this is why I say the day may come where wherever we hide, they will track us, find us, and punish us with the power and the reach of surveillance technology. Remember in 1984, if you read that book, if you were even out in the countryside, there could still be a microphone hidden in a bush. Today, we've got smartphones and smart TVs that can monitor our conversations, and knowledge is power. If they know something about you, it's easier to manipulate you. Remember, the East German citizens volunteered negative information about their friends and neighbors just to keep in good with the system. We have a system today that is capable of accumulating a lot more power than the Pharaohs or the Caesars ever thought about having. We have surveillance technologies now that Hitler and Stalin would have given their eye teeth for. And the populace made snitching normal behavior. There is in our time a tremendous amassing of personal data. And consumerism is the way we're learning to love Big Brother. They make you like what they want you to like without the manipulation even being detected. They know what advertising will appeal most to you as an individual. That's why those certain ads come up on your screens. Just as the devil knows how to use the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in the right combination for you, so the advertisers are the same way now. So what happens when the products that they're selling are politicians or ideologies? How will people even know they're being manipulated? We have huge corporations that are far more powerful than many countries. Progressive virtue signaling to consumers is a smart business move now in exactly the same way that signaling all-American patriotism was a smart business move for corporations back in the 1950s. I've lived long enough to see both ends of that spectrum. 
We can computer analyze on all human-generated information. And if government is determined to take you out, it can manufacture a crime from the data it has captured. I've been in airports in Asia where when a camera sees your eye, it knows exactly who you are, and it always is going to know who you are. In China, cameras are so ubiquitous on the streets, recording the daily comings and goings of people that you can hardly do anything without it being known. If a person in China, under the Chinese Communist Party today, is seen merely walking in the opposite direction from a crowd, the system automatically records that and alerts the police just to let them know. The same thing is true if somebody is going into a forbidden area, like maybe a church building, and there are rewards and demerits based on obedience. Listening, for instance, to a speech by Zhang Ping, or however you pronounce the leader's name. If you do that, listen to his speech, then you are receiving a higher social credit score because of that. And this brainwashing begins in nursery school. Young Chinese today are given no ability to learn the facts about their nation's history. Anything that contradicts the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party. Back in the Soviet Union, if a young person wanted to study history, they found it was impossible to do this, and many of them changed their majors to the natural sciences to avoid contamination with the ideology as much as possible. If you refused to join the Communist Youth League, that meant that you couldn't travel abroad. If you refused to wear the little pin with Lenin's face on it, then they went after your teachers, and your teachers were forced to pressure you to save themselves. You had to write an essay in school, but you could never write what you really thought about the subject. You had to find some way to relate that essay to the communist point of view. And parents were so afraid that their children would be punished for even inadvertently telling the truth that they chose not to tell them the truth about their country's history and the regime. The party slogan in 1984 was, who controls the past controls the future, and who controls the present controls the past. The technological ability to implement that same kind of control in the West already exists. And the moment somebody is keeping an eye on what you do and you know it, then you voluntarily tend to make allowances for that eye. So, you and I speak the truth in love. You and I are the ones who break the circuit. And by breaking the rules of the game, we expose it as a mere game. We shatter the world of, of appearances, which is really the main pillar of the system. You and I are the ones who say that the emperor is naked, knowing that anybody who steps out of line threatens the entire system. Now, people who live only for their own comfort and survival are willing to live with lies to protect that, but they are demoralized people. The system depends on this demoralization. You saw it in, in 1984 if, if you read that book. The protagonist of the book was told to admit that 2 plus 2 is 5. And he said he, he would never do that. 2 plus 2 is not 5, he said. So they used drugs on him to get him to say that 2 plus 2 is 5. And he wouldn't say it, so they tortured him to get him to say 2 plus 2 is 5. And before the book ends, yeah, he agrees. 2 plus 2 is 5, and he loves Big Brother. To compromise with lies for the sake of a peaceful life is to bend the knee to death. We may need to learn to live with reduced expectations of worldly success. You and I have a Bible that does not change, and truth outweighs the whole world. Defend the truth and endure the consequences. The time may well come 
and I used to say this to young people, but it may happen to any of us now. Things have accelerated. The time may well come when each of us have to decide whether a broken body is a price worth paying for an undefiled spirit. They may label you mentally ill and give you electroshock therapy to bring you around to the progressive point of view. And yes, it's true. We do need to assess which fights are worth having, which hills are worth dying on. And no, prudence is not the same thing as cowardice. But if you cannot imagine any situation where you would stand up and speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may, then cowardice has a greater claim on you than it should. The political religion that murdered tens of millions of people and imprisoned and tortured countless others in the last hundred years and made miserable the lives of half of humanity in its time is being romanticized by ignorant young people in our time. The falsification of history creates suckers for the false utopian promises. Not to know what really happened before you were born is to remain a child forever. In 1984, the job of the protagonist was to erase all newspaper records of past events. The great ambition of totalitarianism is the total control of human memory. And this is achieved by a total state monopoly on information, including education and media. The person cut off from history is almost powerless against power. In the Soviet Union, they killed the people who could remember history, and that made it easier to create a false history. Where do we fit into all this? Well, the Lord built the church as a community that keeps on telling the truth. We keep on telling the truth. We tell it internally. We tell it externally here, there, and everywhere. The church is a space where the real meaning of words is preserved, where we describe reality as it really is where we show people what a normal monogamous family looks like, because family is where we first learn to love others. Family is the bedrock of civilization, and the church is God's family, so that even people with deficient nuclear family, who come from deficient nuclear families, can still have God's family with all its benefits and blessings. If and when we do have a government and a social order that's bent on the destruction of the family because they see the family and the church as threats to state control, then the most important thing is going to be just keeping ourselves grounded in reality and keeping on telling the truth to each other and to other people. Totalitarianism, if it comes to us, is going to insist on the abandonment of reason, upon the loss of tradition and memory. It's going to extend from politics into the faith and thinking of the individual if it possibly can. If possible, the function of the family will be reduced to producing autonomous consumers with no sense of connection or obligation to anything greater than the fulfilling of their own desires. And when we mindlessly surrender our children's minds to smartphones and the Internet, we're playing right into this already. We should reject the worshiping of children and catering to their every desire. The modern family is not going to hold together if the father and the mother consider divorce an easy solution to the difficulties of marriage. A Christian father must, above all else, be a servant of Jesus Christ and be aware that his family does not exist for itself alone, but first of all for God. We must teach our children how to read the world around them. 
Teach our children how to understand people and events in terms of right and wrong. Give them an opportunity to serve something greater than themselves. Expose them to things that help them to know the difference between truth and falsehood. Vaccinate your children against lies. Show them it's okay to be different. Teach them that there is a good God who will eventually win, even though we may not see it during our earthly lifetimes. Teach them that suffering is not meaningless because we're part of a greater battle. Teach them what to live for. Teach them that they're accountable to God. The demands made on us may grow greater. The consequences for failing to submit may grow more severe. Because the Christian faith is viewed as a rival religion that the post-Christian world can't afford to tolerate for long. Totalitarianism will always try to break down the family and the church because it's in the family and the church that you and I get the strength to be able to fight. The church is a survival strategy for the faith in times of persecution. We help each other have the courage that we need. You know, sometimes when you see somebody else behaving courageously, it helps you to behave courageously as well. The willingness of all those martyrs through the centuries to suffer even unto death always plants the love of God into the hearts of people who hear about it or who see it if they love the truth at all. This is why Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. If you suffer for truth, That somehow seems to make the truth more credible to others. The Lord taught us that if we share in his suffering here, we'll share in his glory in the next world. So each of us has to decide within ourselves, what is going to win in me? Is it going to be fear or will it be courage? Am I just an admirer of Jesus Christ or am I an actual disciple of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't come to proclaim a philosophy. He came to show that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The way of life he gave us is the life of the way. His whole life was calculated to have followers and to make mere admirers impossible. The Lord has given us a reason to die, which is to say he's given us a reason to live. There can be nothing more beautiful if it becomes necessary than to lay down your life for God. We each personally and individually, need to be ready to die because only then will we have the strength to resist the lies. You are going to be able to receive whatever your interrogators do to you as an aid to your own salvation. The scriptures in your memory will be a wonderful aid to you if and when you are behind bars. The scriptures in your memory will help you to order the time, especially if you're in solitary confinement. If your soul is free, then man is limited in what he can do to you. One man in Greece pointed out that when they would torture me at a certain point, I would always lapse into unconsciousness and wasn't aware at all of what they were doing to me anymore. So this is a built-in relief factor that the Lord has placed within us. Generally, those who are afraid to stand up, end up worse off than those who behave courageously. We've each got to count the cost of discipleship. You know, we have history for this in the past. We can see what happened. Stalin took the leaders of the churches and imprisoned them. But other men stood up to fill their shoes. So Stalin took away their meeting houses. And those who were close to one another among the saints gathered in homes in small groups. They read the Bible, they prayed together, they sang. Sixty years of terror 
and they were unable to get rid of faith. When the Bibles were confiscated, the people rewrote, rewrote what they could remember by hand. So there were little niches of freedom in a godless world. There was camaraderie among the saints in the midst of travail. And when you join your grief with the grief of others, it's easier to carry. In worshiping God with the church, we find something to draw us out of ourselves. It's never been more important than it is right now for us to meet with the saints when we have the opportunity. You may be constantly observed by secret police in the future. They may park in front of your house. It's perfectly possible. It wouldn't be out of place, I think, if they're out there on a cold winter day just to invite them in for a hot cup of coffee. Do good to them that hate you. That's what the Lord taught us, and he knows what works best. Always behave as you believe Christ would behave. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. The great lie in our therapeutic culture is that personal happiness is the greatest good of all. When the truth is that suffering is a normal part of life and suffering teaches us how to be patient and kind and loving. So if pain comes, offer your pain as a gift to God. Go through it so you can help others and so you can help the church. God gave you everything you have. So when the going gets rough, are you going to pretend that you don't believe in him? Old Polycarp settled that issue for himself back in 155 A.D. How can I disown my king who saved me? And he went to the stake and was burned rather than do so. Now, there's nothing requiring any of us to seek out suffering. We're not masochists after all. But suffering rightly received can be a gift. And interestingly, in the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn urged us to have mercy on prisoners who break under the torture. That could be you and it could be me. Sometimes people will say anything just to make the pain stop. Just let them bring one of your grandchildren in and torture her in front of you and see what you might be willing to say under those conditions. It might surprise you. But to forgive, to not curse your tormentor, to not consider anything of this world to be a treasure to you, that is maturity. And some people in these prison camps had moments of joy that they had never reached and they were free out in the world. They had everything taken from them but their faith in God and in prison they found their real inner liberation through suffering. They had moments that some of them said were like paradise. And the less they were able to change the world around them, the stronger they became. They changed their understanding of freedom. Accepting suffering was the beginning of their liberation. One man said, suffering was a gift from God that invited me to change. Suffering started my revolution against the greatest totalitarian ruler of all, myself. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. But first of all, over our own hearts. There is no Christian faith without tears. Truth cannot be separated from tears. Feeble forms of faith will quickly be burned away in the face of persecution. What we will be in the time of testing depends in part on what we are today. All of us prefer that the cup of suffering pass from us, but if our moment comes, we need to be ready to make a costly stand. We need to make up our mind 
before the bow is drawn against us. We won't know how to behave when the time arrives if we haven't prepared ourselves to accept pain and loss for the sake of the Lord. So I say these things today not to frighten you, but to prepare all of us for what could possibly come. Learn the accounts of Christian martyrdom so that you will know when and how to live them if it becomes necessary. And our suffering will have purpose, though the purpose may not even be clear to us at the time. It will serve as a refiner's fire. It will reflect a severe mercy. Just remember what the Lord told Ezekiel. You tell the truth and people's reactions are up to them. But if you tell the truth, you have delivered your own soul. So the Apostle Paul says, speak the truth in love. And when we do that, we're likely to have the best reaction that's possible in the circumstance. We're going to conclude by extending the Lord's invitation. This is an invitation to make a stance that may change your life forever and may make your life on earth shorter than it otherwise might have been. But what if you do die? Just think of these things we've been singing about, all the things written in the Bible about the next world. At best, you're going to die anyway. So you might as well die a death that has eternal significance. We extend you the invitation as we stand together. Please let us know if we can assist you while we sing.